For this episode, it was a great joy to have my good friend Nijay Gupta in town all the way from Portland, Oregon. We talked about lots of interesting things, including his new book on pistis in Paul. Welcome. We're very glad you're here. Glad you made it on Thank a you. red eye flight and <laughs> spent the day here in Louisville with us on this hot day. Yeah, my first time to Louisville. It's great. Well, one of the uh, questions, if you may have seen, I've at, I always ask my guests, are what was your first car? Yeah, my first car was a uh, Honda Accord, 1987. What year was that? Did you have it? Uh, I had it in 1995. Okay. And I wrecked it within the first three weeks of wow. driving. It's my brother's car. Oh, bummer. And uh, Hand me just, down. Like yep. A, okay. And uh, but it ended up being a blessing disguised because uh, my dad got me a, a new car. Wow. After, after wrecking it, <laughs> he had enough faith in me, and so uh, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't the sturdiest driver to begin with. Right, but right. that yeah. I remember, I think the first time I saw your name, and then I remember we probably met at SBL at some point early on. I think so. And just briefly in a bathroom. IBR. Maybe, or yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. yeah, RBR probably, or SBL. Um, but I think I first saw your name because pretty early on in the blog world, I mean, everybody was after Mark Goodacre, of course, who started, you know, Bill Blizzard's yeah, blogging, yeah, yeah. basically. Um, but you had, was it Dunelm Road? Is that what it's called or something? That or? was my friend Ben Blackwell's. I had. Weren't you involved in that? No. Uh, okay. I started my own early on, Crux Sola. Of course, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So Ben was there at the same time as you guys. But ben those was were a dirt early with me. blogs about, I remember a lot of discussion about like moving to the UK and doing a PhD and things like that. Yeah, blogging yeah. had just become, this was 2006, 2007. Right. It become kind of a. a just a place on the internet where you could put information that yeah. really everybody wanted or needed. Totally. And it's hard to appreciate because in internet dog years, that's like, you know, a generation, <laughs> right? I mean. Yeah, it was <clears throat> so early on. And what was funny is you had these bloggers and there was a pretty small community and we kind of read each other's stuff and yeah. we knew each other. In fact, I don't know if it's still going on, but there was kind of a blogging group yeah. that met at SBL right, for right. dinner and things right. like that. But. Honestly, I started blogging because I don't come from a family of professors. I didn't early on aspire to be in the academy. I kind of stumbled into it. Yeah. And I didn't know how to do anything. Yeah, I didn't know course. how to present a paper. Right. I didn't know how to do advanced research in humanities. Um, I didn't even do a master's thesis. So I went to my doctoral right. program pretty green. Right. And. I didn't know who to ask, so as I did find answers, I thought, you know, someone needs to write this stuff down. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because there are a lot of people that don't know who to ask, some people do who don't have anyone to ask. Right. And there are a lot of things that I thought, I wish I knew this when I was in my undergraduate. Yeah. Or I wish I knew this my first year seminary. So I ended up just starting a blog on that and I really gained a lot of traction. People had the same questions. Yep. Uh, and it got to the point where... Well, it became the book then, basically, right? It became the book, eventually. Uh, prepare, succeed, advance, right? That's right. And what was funny about the book is a lot of publishers didn't want to publish yeah. it. I remember you saying something about that recently, because the second edition just came out. The second edition just came out. But the first edition, uh, publishers thought, 
number one, I'm giving away kind of insider secrets, maybe. Really? That's um, an odd response, yeah. Yeah, maybe some things that shouldn't be written and more for conversation. Huh. But I think about internationals, I think about people from uh, first generation, you know, college kind of communities where they don't yeah. have the people to ask. So I thought, you know, it'd be really helpful. S- secondly, um, I was criticized for just being kind of uh, a new scholar at that right. time, which I was. Right. But the advantage was all the stuff was fresh in my yeah, head. Yeah, for sure. So I took a risk, and I was really happy for Wiffenstock to take the risk on me. And I'll it tell you so what, well. You know, I don't know what well is, right. but I'll tell you, since that time, I think 2011, um, I get maybe about one email every week from someone yeah. who's either asked me a question related to... Uh, academic research in response to that yeah, book or the course. blog, yeah, yeah. Uh, or just want to thank me for right. that information. Um, I've gotten more feedback from that book than all my other right. pieces of research combined. Right. So it's been a real blessing. That's great. So the work you did there, Worship That Makes Sense, mm-hmm. um, which I had not realized until last year when I was talking to you that you had worked in metaphor theory because right. I'm a little yeah. later coming to this, maybe only in the last seven or eight years, you know, read Lackoff and Johnson, and then uh, I've read a lot in cognitive linguistics, a lot in metaphor theory. Of course, it relates to philosophy of language stuff I'm very interested right. in. So I was very interested to go back this weekend and, and read your dissertation, which I did. And so you're one of like five. Yes, so that's right. You. I didn't buy it. Come on, man. <laughs> I don't get royalties anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and so and I mentioned to you, and I'll come back to Erin Heim, you know, I, she has obviously done work in this mm-hmm. later too, but you were relatively early on in people applying metaphor theory to um, biblical studies. I mean, there are, you know, Soskis and other people have done it, and you do a really nice survey at the beginning of uh, kind of, it's very short, but the idea of metaphor that had been written off in the modern period as just ornamental or substitutionary. It reminded me, I don't know if you've read read uh, Turner and Falconer's uh, The Way We Think about mm-hmm. about cognitive uh, conceptual mapping. And that first chapter in there is this brilliant discussion of how the philosophy of language changed in the scientific period to look down on figuration, right? Right. right. So anyway, you, anyways, all that to say, tell me how you got into that and maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, your dissertation. Oh, here, here it is. I've got the library's copy, right? So <laughs> Yeah, well, I was interested in Paul's use of sacrificial metaphors. And my supervisors, Stephen Barton and John Barclay, both of them really pointed me in the direction of having a strong theoretical yeah. grounding. Okay. And they asked me to look into um, conceptual metaphor theory. And I didn't know what it was, but as I studied, I realized that this was really an open area yeah. to apply to biblical studies. For Joel sure. Green had done some of this. There was a Scandinavian named Ryder Orsgaard who'd written okay. on uh, sibling language. Okay. He was kind of before me, and I took a lot of cues yeah. from, from him. And John Barclay had been one of his examiners. Oh, and so he got okay. me on that trail. But what really fascinated me w- was how Paul, um, we think of theology in categories like Christology, you know, kind of boxes. Yep. And what I learned from conceptual metaphor theory is how much the way we think is shaped by key or master metaphors. Um, And you think about businesses and they might talk about taking their their business on a journey. Or you might think about a corporation that says we're a family. 
So it got me thinking a lot about how potent... How they shape you. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And I remember Beverly Gaventa citing a theorist who said, metaphors have the capacity to move around the furniture in our mind. Mm. And so just the sheer power of these metaphors, yeah. around that same time, Ray Collins wrote a book called The Power of Images and Paul. And so this got me really thinking through what do metaphors of sacrifice, priesthood, and temple right. say about identity and ethics in Paul's letters? And that's kind of the substance of what I wanted to study and how much Paul is able to, for example, reframe suffering through the image of sacrifice. Yeah. So how would you describe the thesis of the book? Um, I would say that... Um, Paul uses these master cultic metaphors as vehicles to shape their communal identity okay. around holiness, around um, triumph in and over suffering, and over virtue and ethics. Okay. And today we need to be thinking about how we need to use metaphors in our theological context that are going to help reframe yeah. uh, what our mission is. Sometimes in spite of or yeah. against um, the pressures against who we are. Right, right. And this is where I also, because of John Barclay, did study with um, Peter Berger. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. His work, uh, Berger and Luckman, yep. on the social construction and so social psychological construction of reality. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and this idea that reality in our mind um, especially metaphors help stabilize that reality uh -huh. because inevitably things are going to be pushing against our worldview yeah. and you know various traumas or problems in our life and the question is whether it's stable or secure enough to handle dynamically those problems mm -hmm. and uh, Berger I think believed that you know religion especially held together right. these kind of communal <clears throat> uh, sociological frames of knowledge yeah you have been super productive. We were talking about that recently, and I, I most people that don't write books can't, especially academic books, can't appreciate that it's a stuffing the pipe thing. Like you're working on stuff for a while, and then it, it's a long time before it comes out the other end. You're putting it in yeah. one end, and sometimes if you've been working on stuff diligently for several years, all of a sudden a bunch of stuff comes out around the same time, and it seems like that's you're entering a really fruitful period that is reflective of your diligence over many years, I'm sure. State of the New Testament, um, what's the Beginner's Guide to the New Testament yep. as well? Want to say a little bit about some of those books that aren't quite out yet, so I don't have them. Yeah, so this, you know, the most recent one well, is got the Zonovan Critical Introduction. Yeah, which is that, very you know, impressive too, yes. Yeah, so that, that's the fruit of, you know, many six, years. six to seven yeah. years of work. I calculated it to roughly 2,000 hours, right. which many of us have done things like that. But that's that was harder than my dissertation easily. Right in terms of, you know, getting all the details. Yeah, it's very uh, impressive. So it, it was fun, but I would never do a project like that again. Right. It was, it was uh, a gift. Right, to, <laughs> to the church, to the, to and the, the academy. academy yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, like as you said, some are smaller projects, um, some are bigger ones. So I have a, you know, a big project, a monograph on Paul's language of faith. Oh, that's, what, let's come back to that. I want to out, talk about that. Yeah. Coming so. out in uh, either late, late this year, or early next year, 20, 2020. Um, I have an uh, 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 introduction, a theological introduction of Philippians coming out 
In January, Mike Bird and I wrote a commentary on Philippians, which is different, that's coming out next wow. summer. Okay. Um, and um, I'm writing right now, this summer, an, a guide to New Testament commentaries. What yes. to buy. It's like the old Carson one that was forever. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this will be a little bit shorter, but um, you know what I get a lot from students is questions about people of color. Oh, right. Uh, right. Are they writing commentaries? What are they writing? Uh, there's a lot of new commentaries out yeah. in the last a lot of new series, series. Yeah. in the last right. five, six years. A lot of niche kind of commentaries yeah, yeah. that have very unique yeah. philosophies. Thanks for doing that. That is such, I mean, yeah. Carson's many editions of that were always very helpful. And it'll be nice to have a, another person doing that now, yeah. a, new, a new person doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm tuned some in. different to, sensibilities. I'm tuned in different, you know, right. kinds of things and approaches. And I'm very interested in social science. I'm very interested in, uh, global readings yeah, of scripture yeah. and things like that. So that, I'm working on that. All right, can so, we get back to Paul in the language of faith? Yeah. Because you presented in the 1892 Club on that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some interesting stuff going on between <clears throat> Barclay's work. Um, Theresa um, Morgan came out with Theresa a book. Theresa Morgan, and of course, um, Matthew Bates. Matt Bates, another, yeah. So tell us what that book's about, because I'm super excited about it. Yeah, so um, I, I arrived at the idea for that book when um, Lexham asked me to write a dictionary article on faith in the Bible. Wow. No and that's a yeah, For $100 that's a, probably. Yeah, that's well, how those dictionary articles it, go. I, what was stranger was it was such a short article so I right. had to look into how faith language is used in the Old Testament right. in the Septuagint. How many words were you supposed to write? I don't know. Maybe 500 words. Oh my goodness. Some thousand words. That's the hardest thing to do is write is. 500 words on a big gun. Because there's yeah. so much going on and, and yeah. The first thing that struck me after doing all that work, looking at Old Testament, New Testament, Second Temple literature, patristics, because uh, I want to get a kind of 360 approach, was um, faith language is not new to the New Testament. Hmm. Uh, we Wait already start seeing that. faith yeah. language in the Old Testament, so right. we think of faith as kind of a theological novum, something brand new, right. and it wasn't. Um, so that led me to start thinking, okay, how is Paul doing something similar and different to what we see in the Old Testament? And also, I don't know if I told you this, but I was a classics uh, yeah, student in that. college. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of want to return to some of those roots and look at how faith language was used in Greco-Roman literature in mm-hmm. particular. At the same time, I was watching discussions develop in the academy around divine and human agency in oh, Paul. Right. Yep. And I tended to see two things happening. One is you had Lutheran-style interpreters saying that faith is the opposite of doing. Right. Faith is the opposite of, of works. Right. And we could talk more about and that you know, where that's coming so from. And so entrenched, yeah. It is, right. and it's still going on today. There's been several newer Galatians commentaries that kind of reinforce that view. Right. At the same time, you have a more apocalyptic reading of Paul that takes faith completely out of the human realm and says, whenever faith language is used, it's focused on the faithfulness of God. So Luther believed Christians have faith, but faith is just, you know, relying on God. Uh, now you have an apoc- apocalyptic reading, and, 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 it's, and it's extreme, and there are a couple right. interpreters like this. They want to say faith has nothing to do with humans, and it's really just the faithfulness of God. Right. What I call pure or extreme divine agency. Right. And I had wondered, um, in its own context, how would Paul's words have been read by everyday Christians, perhaps by non-Christian Jews, 
And just looking at the language of faith in Second Temple Jewish literature and Greco-Roman literature at large, um, I looked up nearly every instance of pistis in Hellenistic wow. pagan literature. Right. There's a lot. I bet. And the first thing to say there is faith was, by and large, doing. Um, in fact, you see it most often in texts of what I call concord, uh, treaties and political texts, military texts. So part of my burden in that book is to really help readers to understand, readers of the New Testament, to understand in the ancient world, faith was largely seen as a social virtue. That's so recent Morgan's done that. Would that yeah. be a good transition? Loyalty, Loyalty allegiance even, or yeah. something like that. At the same, you now Teresa Morgan had expressed that really well in her book, and I had written mine before she'd published hers, but I was continuing to write. Um, and I tried not to look at her stuff so I could just work on mine, right. you know, with my own thoughts in mind. What I noticed was, though, faith, pistis, is a very unusual word. It's one of the most unusual Greek words because it is so polyvalent. Right, right. It can mean, you know, so I use the language of modulation. It can have this meaning, faithfulness. It can even have a meaning like obedience. But then it can move along a spectrum closer to the verb pistio, which has this sense of something the mind does. Mm -hmm. Trusting even or something more Trusting like that. Trusting would be a more comprehensive term, right. but believing is okay for that. Um, I, you know, One of my favorite movies is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Right. And I think about that third test yeah. where he has to step, step out in out, faith. He can't see him and they don't appear until he does That's it. right. I love that yeah, scene. Yeah, and, I, and I use that scene when I talk to my students about that. <laughs> We're such Second Corinthians 5, 7, right, yeah. where yeah. Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Pistis can mean what I call believing the unbelievable. Right. And I go back to Isaiah 53, who has believed our message, to whom an arm of the Lord has been revealed. So what I argue is, piss is this unique word. It can't be encapsulated in just one English word. Well, like Horus as well, right? Absolutely. So the idea of it's perfect, you can perfect different elements of it or that's something, right. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Similar to what Barclay says. Yeah. So it moves along the spectrum, and you really have to look in various contexts. Actually, I got some help from you, if you remember. We had a conversation about this. I where remember, you were yeah. talking about intensive gospel symbols. studies, how kingdom of God can be a tensive symbol. Yeah, exactly. Nick where it opens yeah. up a whole world of meanings. Yeah. And it's hard to encapsulate, boil it down to just one meaning. Good. Did you not be using something along those I lines? I did. It's, All right. In okay, the conclusion, great. you get full credit okay. for that. Um, <laughs> but that was really helpful because I feel like in many cases we sell the language of faith short. Yeah. We sell it short. Either or. On both ends. Yeah, right. Um, sometimes it can be all-consuming where I do think it means trust. But our English Bibles, unfortunately, especially the traditional ones, NIV, ESV, RSV, NRSV, NET, they really lock onto this word faith, and it has trouble capturing that trust and loyalty and obedience yeah, elements. Yeah, right. And then it also ends up not really well capturing this believing the unbelievable. Yeah. So I have three ways right, of looking right. at how faith language can be used in Paul. One is what I call believing faith, which Richard Hayes calls the... Uh, conversion of the imagination. Right. Um, have you ever looked at one of those weird puzzles where you have to kind of screw your eyes yes. up and some you yes. know, 3D image yes. comes out and some people can do it and some people can't yes. and it takes some work? Right. Um, I feel like Paul treats faith like that yeah. where it's a kind of second way of seeing. You need to look differently. Yeah, yeah. a second way of seeing. So he talks right. about in 2 Corinthians, people look at the suffering Christian and say, it's just a dead carcass. Yeah. And God 
looks at it and says, it's a pleasing sacrifice. Right. And it takes faith to yeah. know the difference. Yeah. And I feel suffering like, is actually glory. Absolutely, right. and it's pleasing to God. Right. And that's a kind of faith that takes this spiritual insight. Yeah. So I call that believing faith. And then on the other end, you have something like obeying faith, which we see in places like First Thessalonians and Philippians, where it talks about, you know, being people of light, having armor and a helmet that's made up of faith and love. And it's really talking about fully devoted, right. full devotion. But then there's all these places where it seems kind of all-encompassing, and I call that trusting faith. So we have believing faith, obeying faith, trusting faith, and you see that a lot in Galatians, when faith came. Well, the faith isn't my personal faith. The faith isn't the faithfulness of Christ. It's a kind of all-consuming package that is what I call the Christ relation, the fact of the Christ relation. The main objective of the book is to really open up how this word can be read in its context yeah. and how it relates to Paul's theology in respect to divine and human agency. Yeah, wow, that yeah. sounds great. But one of the things we always do is uh, we have random envelopes, which okay. I have no idea what's in Full these. Full of money. Uh, well, we'll see. That's <laughs> off camera. We can't, for IRS reasons, I we can't do But you. choose one of these, you'll yeah. answer the question, I'll it's answer it as one. well. Okay. Official ripping open here. That's right. And the winner is... If you took up boxing, what would be your fighting name? (laughs) Oh, gosh. So I will tell you, and I don't tell a lot of people this. Growing up, my brother's nickname for me was Bubba. Oh, that is that is gold. Thank yeah. you. So I'm, I'm definitely using that. I guess own. I would have Every to Every endorsement with... I make for one of your books. <laughs> Bubba's book is pretty good. You should say is, Bubba's book is a knockout. <laughs> so you go with Bubba? I, I guess I'd as an homage to my, my brothers. Okay. All right. I'd have to go with Bubba. Bubba Gupta. Bubba Gupta. <laughs> this was before Forrest Gump, but yeah. Oh my. What about you? You have to answer yeah, now. Boy, I, I kind of like suffering love, but uh, let's see. Um, maybe... No mercy, or something. <laughs> no mercy. Hosea six six, okay. or something. Thanks, man. Yeah, really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to all of our social media and especially our YouTube channel. We also have a Patreon account if you want to support us that way. Thanks again. We'll see you on the road.